Since October 7th, the Gaza Health Ministry said in a statement today. For WPFW News in Washington and WBAI in New York, I'm Sue Goodwin. Welcome to Africa Now. Today's show features Reflections on Malcolm X, Part 2, Black Workers, and El-Hajj Malik El-Shabazz. Africa Now is next. Welcome to Sean Wiesel Montali. The music in the background is You're Playing Us Too Close by Third World with Stevie Wonder. Today, Africa Now continues a series which highlights some of the discussions which took place during the Malcolm X Radical Tradition and the Legacy of Struggle Conference held in New York City in November 1990. More than 3,000 people from 25 countries attended the conference, which featured more than 100 speakers that led 24 sessions that deeply explored, contextualized, and situated El-Hajj Malik El-Shabazz in the genealogy of black radical internationalism as a pan-Africanist. In today's program, we feature part two, Black Workers and El-Hajj Malik El-Shabazz, part of the series of this conference. Here is Africa Now's executive producer and co-host James Pope. Thank you for tapping into Reflections on Malcolm X. Through the 1990 Malcolm X Radical Tradition and a Legacy of Struggle Conference. This is part two, Black Workers and Malcolm X. In this series, Africa Woke Now Project is sharing some of the sessions from this conference in an effort to engender serious engagement with Malcolm, not in the narrow confines of him as an individual or pigeonholed him to moments or sound bites but to identify the tradition that produced Malcolm as a nexus, a point of entry for many seriously trying to figure out what is to be done. More than this, we encourage you to visit Dr. Abdul Akalimat's website to explore, read, and hear more of the conference. The archive link will be available in the description section as you locate the program via various podcast platforms. What we will hear next in the following order, Ashaki Benta with Black Workers for Justice, General Baker, League of Revolutionary Black Workers, and Saladin Muhammad, Black Workers for Justice. Our show was produced today in solidarity with the Native, Indigenous, African, and Afro-descendant communities at Standing Rock, Venezuela, Corporation Jackson in Jackson, Mississippi, Brazil, the Avalon Village in Detroit, Colombia, Kenya, Palestine, South Africa, Ghana, Haiti, and other places who are fighting for the protection of our land for the benefit of all peoples. Listen intently, think critically, act accordingly. Good afternoon, brothers and sisters. I've been really inspired by the first two presentations and um, especially enjoyed both sets of comments about uh, Brother Malcolm. And I guess we feel that uh, one of the things that Malcolm would want now is for us to, to move forward with programs to address the real conditions and needs of our people. So I've been asked to comment on uh, the work of the Black Workers for Justice and what we're doing. The Black Workers for Justice is a black liberation organization with a focus and program for organizing workers and bringing an or- organized labor concentration to the National Black Liberation Movement for National Liberation. We were founded in 1981 directly out of an indigenous struggle against discrimination and economic injustice by three black women workers from a Kmart store in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. With the time limitations that we have, I guess the details on our founding and early development might not be warranted right now, but I do want to make a few comments on the socioeconomic conditions in the black belt that uh, have undergirded the development of the Black Workers for Justice. Certain economic, socioeconomic conditions characterize the Black Belt South today, which constitutes the framework 
for the development of basic organizations in the South, such as the Black Workers for Justice, and provide for us our parameters for operations with both limitations and opportunities and certain necessary problems that our work has been forced to address. Two predominant characteristics shape the conditions of the African American people in the Black Belt today. Number one, between 1974 and 1985, more than 5.2 million jobs were relocated to the South, demonstrating a major shift in the U.S. imperial estate economic structure, which of course was global in its parameters, but which also changed the economic character of the South and vastly increased the trend of runaway South from the North to the South, which had began in the early 60s. Busting and anti-labor policies which were the cornerstone of the Reagan-Bush uh, New Right administration. Consequently, organized labor itself has taken a broadside hit, while corporations and at least parts of industries have moved into the unorganized and underdeveloped Black Belt South. And yet the South has remained the poorest region of the United States. Secondly, roughly 53% of all African-American people still reside in the Black Belt South. In over 90 counties, we constitute uh, still the majority, or at least 50% or more, of the population in those counties. And as a mere reflection of the political powerlessness of the African-American community in the South, I just want to cite some information about uh, black elected officials. In January of 1989, there were only 7,190 black people elected to office in the U.S. 4,800 of those elected were from the South. Of that 4,800, roughly 3,000 held positions at the city and county level, 200 at the U.S. Uh, state legislative level, 400 in law enforcement, and about 900 in educational positions. Consequently, in terms of laws, policies, and the social context of the South, it remains the bastion of right-to-work laws and hire-and-fire-at-will laws, as well as low wages and a pervasive character of underdevelopment, especially in the black, Indian, and poor rural areas of the South, which is the Black Belt. And, and this also has meant the lack of meaningful control uh, over the institutions that affect our lives on a day-to-day -day basis. In 1987, median, median income for a black male worker in the South was only $11,000. For a black female worker in the South, the median income was $6,700. In the South, more than 34% of the black population lives below the, the so-called government poverty level, which is only $12,000. Black workers can simply be characterized in the South as the working poor, with the black woman worker at the extreme end of that. 34% of all Southern black families are headed by females. These are roughly the conditions in the South uh, that has kind of shaped the development of the BWFJ. I want to talk a little bit about our program. Over the years, the tenets of our work have evolved to include these areas of concentration. Number one, we call for the building of the labor movement in the South with an industrial concentration as the framework for its organization. This call is rooted in the focus upon the need for trade unions to build in the South. The BWFJ over the years has worked with various trade unions. We've helped to organize certain campaigns. Members of our organization are also members of trade unions such as they exist in the South. Secondly, we call for a definite unity between the struggle for black political power in the South and the building of the labor and trade union movement. As an example, for more than three years, members of the BWFJ worked in the majority black town of Keysville, Georgia, helping to build this movement for reactivation. We worked in Fremont, uh, North Carolina over the years, helping to establish uh, the first black elected officials in that small town. We worked in communities such as Shiloh uh, and many other smaller communities, but uh, which really constitute majority black uh, freeholds and strongholds in the South. Number three, the building and constant, constant convening of the Black United Front in the South and nationally 
and the building and consolidation of a solidarity movement throughout the country with the movement to organize the South and to build trade unions and to fight for black political power. These three factors are kind of the thrust of our program. In terms of our operations and methods, the Black Workers for Justice publishes a newspaper, Justice Speaks, once a month, 11 times a year. We formed a trade union commission, uh, which has been focusing on the uh, question of industrial development, how to bring that about. Their concentration has been on the poultry industry, which has largely, uh, uh, if not totally, situated itself in the South, and basically has a workforce of black women workers and some extreme problems. So we've been working on an industrial approach to that industry. We have formed a, uh, uh, that was formed in 1985. In 1985, we also formed the Women's Commission. Uh, that commission has been formed to address the particular problems that women workers are confronted with in the South, uh, both, uh, uh, well, I should say, anchoring ourselves uh, in the struggle against uh, sexism and male chauvinism, uh, both in our community and within the broader society, and particularly in the workplace, uh, as women workers face that. And we've seen the differences in wages. Uh, some of the work that we've done over the years, <clears throat> I would just like to mention a few of these of uh, the things that we've been involved in. In 1988, the Black Workers for Justice uh, helped to lead a struggle against the plant closing in the South, which was a sled sledge lock company. This was a division of Ingersoll Rand, which is a major international uh, conglomerate, or whatever they call themselves now. And this was a very successful campaign which helped workers to struggle against this plant closing and demonstrated that a struggle could take place and force uh, uh, the company to give concessions to the workers uh, before it was able to close its doors and that struggle is still continuing today with the effects that that company has left uh, in North Carolina before it closed and moved to Mexico. That was a major important campaign in the area where we were working and it's still having its effect upon the consciousness and organization of the working class, particularly in North Carolina. In 1989, uh, the BWFJ launched the Workers' Walk Fairness Campaign, which is a campaign uh, building and calling for the building of a labor movement in the South. Through that campaign, we have begun a broader effort to build and sustain implant committees within a number of the workplaces. These are not the first implant committees that we form by any means in plants, but at the level that it's operating now, it represents an advance in some of the work that's been developing. The Fairness Campaign has also been uh, making a concerted effort to uh, educate the uh, national community about conditions of workers in the South, the need to build a labor movement in the South, the need for trade unions to come South. We've been reaching out and trying to educate a number of the trade unions and encouraging them to come South and begin organizing again. We also participated <clears throat> Uh, in, as a part of this fairness campaign in 1990 in what we called an Organize the South Midwest Solidarity Tour. And through this tour we took 18 workers, we took 18 workers to uh, the Midwest and we traveled to uh, Detroit, Michigan, uh, Cleveland, Ohio, uh, Chicago, Illinois, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and we also had a stop in Erie, Pennsylvania. And uh, through this tour, uh, there was a, in the effort to build the tour, there was a formation of solidarity committees, uh, solidarity committees of organizing in the South in each of these cities. And those committees are ongoing at this time in terms of um, the work that uh, they're doing to educate people and to bring more attention and support and resources uh, to an organized movement in the South in terms of building a labor movement. Uh, also an aspect of the uh, Workers' Work Fairness Campaign has been uh, to call for, this is something that, uh, that we're still working toward, the convening of uh, a massive labor conference in the South, which can uh, hopefully consolidate a program of how to move forward, you know, with the participation of the trade unions and uh, bringing forward the black community as a united front into that uh, with the ministers and other community leaders participating in it, but to make a concerted effort to really organize the South and to focus on it 
um, as, a, as a labor movement throughout the U.S. And recently, as a part of uh, the Workers' One Fairness campaign, we, we have launched the Rehire Ina Best campaign. And uh, this campaign was initiated because upon our uh, return to the South after the Midwest tour, one of our members and one of the workers in the plant who uh, had uh, organized uh, for to elect a union in the plant was asked to, and, and they were defeated by, by the company. But a number of the workers there who the company considered to be leaders or a threat to uh, keeping the union out over the long term were harassed, and one, one sister in particular was fired, uh, who had worked in that plant for 18 years and had an excellent work history. And the solidarity committees that have been functioning across the South have now taken up the Rehire Iron Best campaign uh, because this campaign brings forward the whole question of the right of Southern workers to organize. And it is also a fight for this sister to win her job back. And we've been here this week, uh, in the week previous to the Malcolm X conference, in New York where a new solidarity committee has formed uh, on a speaking tour uh, where we've met with uh, the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists, uh, a number of uh, uh, international representatives, some church leaders, uh, and a number of other trade unionists uh, throughout uh, uh, New York and have presented the story of her firing and also the story of the conditions in the South and the struggle that needs to be waged to organize uh, trade unions in the South. Uh, this has been a great campaign. Yesterday we were a part of the uh, Daily News rally. They have rallies downtown. It was a massive rally in which uh, Jesse Jackson spoke. And uh, we also were speakers at that rally, you know, raising up the Rehire Iron Best campaign and the conditions of workers in the South. Listen to my words. Thank you. Brother General Baker, in terms of his presentation. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, brothers and sisters, fellow workers and friends, uh, it's a real honor for me today here to share this podium with Ida May, Brother Gordon, uh, Sister Shaki, Sister Bia. It's, uh, it's really a pleasure to share a podium and try to express some of my views with such a distinguished audience and panel. I want to deviate for a minute from the critical question we face with to make a few comments in regard to, uh, you know, the spirit of Malcolm X and what that meant for a lot of us. Uh, in reviewing history in a, in a lot of ways, some of you may be familiar with the fact that Malcolm X often spent a lot of time in the city of Detroit. His two, main, his two most famous speeches, Message to the Grassroots and Ballad of the Bullets, was made at King Solomon Baptist Church on 14th and McGraw you know, in the city of Detroit in 1963 and 1964, respectively. And those things, you know, go to heart quite a ways with myself and, and the rest of us that was around the city of Detroit fighting in that day, groping in the dark, trying to find our way. Uh, in a lot of ways, uh, his militancy that he presented in those speeches, you know, uh, kind of goes to heart. If you ever had a chance to really listen to in detail the message to the grassroots, when Malcolm is presenting the passage and the fact that you fight when the white man tells you to fight. You die when the white man tells you to die. But when, you, when it comes time to killing little black babies and black women, you're afraid to bleed. In the, in the background, you can hear somebody hollering, we'll bleed. Well, I want to tell you that that was us there hollering in that audience there. Right. And that's what it meant for us in a lot of ways. And I need to say that because I think it was uh, the spirit of Malcolm in those days. We were young, 22, 23 years old. Uh, when he used to come to town, he would be an enlightened and it would boost us in a lot of ways. Along with that, and listening to some of the words of Robert F. Williams on Radio Free Dixie at night, on Friday nights when he was broadcasting from Cuba, that gave us the kind of strength and fortitude that allowed us to become more than just weekend militants. We would come into parks in the weekends and wear dashikis and talk stuff. And we'd elect the black people's, hear the black people's parliament in the park and go all day long back to work from Monday and Friday, kowtowing you know, to the bosses at work without trying to take that spike into the workplace. And I need to say that about Malcolm, but I think that in this spirit of time, this is the only kind of place I got to present that, because it meant so much for us back in those days. Uh, I got a old historic document here, if I could deviate for just a minute, and you got to excuse its raggedy form, but it's an old document. 
and it's called the Black Vanguard. I can just show you how beat up it is. Uh, but, you know, it was Malcolm's work and stuff at that time that inspired us to attempt to try to organize black workers back in that day. And this is volume one, number three, dated March the 20th, 1965. This is about one month after Malcolm's death. And we had an article that we distributed inside the shops to the black workers there called The Man Who Shot Malcolm. I just want to read a couple of passages of it from you so you can kind of understand where we were then and what it means for us today. And quote, the important thing now is that black men, black men must understand that the plot has meant to frighten us and to bring a halt to the struggle. The real struggle against racist domination and exploitation. It was part of a shoddy plan conceived of and deprived racist enemies of our race who have, have good reason to fear militancy among black men. But African Americans can and must see through these lousy tricks. We must now strive forward even with even more fortitude and more dedication in our struggle for freedom. The tricks of our enemies can no longer work. We will be free. We feel that Malcolm X should be remembered as he actually existed a month ago. We know that all sorts of opportunists, religious fanatics, and the like will attempt to profit by his death. Uh, some will set him up as the new Jesus Christ. Others will claim that he did and said things which he did not. And still others will claim that only they were the true followers of Malcolm. We feel that any attempt to portray Malcolm as anything that he was uh, was not show not shows a lack of respect for the man and his family. We therefore remember man, Malcolm as a man of whom we often agreed with and often did not. But nonetheless, he was and lives on in our memories as a man for whom we had the deepest respect and admiration. He was a freedom fighter, and his death, like the death at any time in any place, was a tragic blow to all freedom-loving peoples of the world. To Betty Shabazz and his children, we extend our deepest sympathies. And to Malcolm, in respect to your beliefs and your religion, we leave you with the universal farewell in the Islamic tradition. Assalamu alaikum. May peace be unto you, Brother Malcolm, at last forevermore. I just wanted to read that to you because that was expressed a month after Malcolm was killed in our attempt back in Detroit to try to express ourselves and try to take that to the working people back in that city. And I, this is the only point in the agenda that I could find to say that, and I think it needed to be said. If we move on then to the points that we got to make here today, I just want to say that. Uh, you know, the, the, the kind of category that we're trying to speak on is the unity among black workers in the struggle against economic barbarism. And in order to express that, I'd like to state it backwards first, try to deal with the question of economic barbarism that we face with, and then proceed to try to talk about the kind of unity that we want amongst workers. I want to say that, you know, our experience back in the city of Detroit and trying to organize auto workers you know, uh, was a long and tedious struggle. This was printed in 1965. We continued to fight in the trenches day by day to try to agitate amongst black workers there. And we only finally hit home three years later. It was 1968, so that meant three years of difficult struggle, fighting to try to agitate and find our way in the course of struggle to find the spot that would try to lead us in some kind of way to organize black workers in a way that was real meaningful for the black liberation struggle. You know, uh, those three years in that three-year period of time was not a year of peace. It was years in which, you know, uh, Malcolm's battle cry, freedom by any means necessary, ranks throughout the country. Not only from Watts, the Watts Rebellion, the Detroit Rebellion in 1967, the rebellions in the streets of Cleveland in 1966. All those things led to a point, you know, in which we got to, it got to the struggle for the point of production where black workers became agitated to the point they were prepared to take a stand and to carry that struggle into the shops. I think one important thing for us to understand is that what happened in that period of time, the kind of conditions that we fought under and the kind of conditions that we resisted. We resist. What became our homes in the, in the auto factories at that time, in case you may not be too familiar with the automobile factory, was that the body shops, the Department 9150 that we referred to them, and the paint shops were the homes of black workers. The hot, heavy, dirty jobs in the auto plants were the pl pl places that we find ourselves. In the steel mills, it was the coke ovens and the blast furnaces and those areas that we populated. It was there for those areas that became our hotbed of agitation. There was those beds, that, those, those departments that sprung forth the leadership of the struggle in that period. You gotta understand that our struggle and agitation out of the drum movement when we set conga drums up at the plant gates and demanded the workers withhold their labor. And when we hit home that day, that it was those departments that withheld their labor. It was those departments that shut down those plants. The union officials ran out of town. We didn't, elect, we, didn't, we didn't hold a single position inside the shop. It was a rank and file movement that led to those shutdowns. And I think you need to know that and understand what it meant for us in a lot of ways. 
They declared those strikes in, in 1968 to be extra legal. They were afraid to bother them on the basis of the critical question that we posed. They didn't say they were illegal, they said they were extra legal. In the first strike at Dodge in May of 1968, um, we lost no casualties and they fired nobody in the course of that strike. They were afraid to bother it. That's, those struggles went on and clearly uh, one year later when we struck the Elvin plant and it closed down most of the crisis facilities around the country, they struck back then in a dramatic way and fired 29 people, picking up those many of those that weren't involved in the strike. I want to mention those things to you because that was a period of time of expansion in the economy. And that's different from what we're faced with today. That we remember in 1967, after the rebellion, that Ford Motor Company set up a hiring block on Grand Boulevard in the city of Detroit and hired 5,000 people in a matter of three months. They call it hardcore program. We remember when General Motors would send buses down 12th Street to pick up people and drive them 25 miles to factory jobs in the city of Detroit. That was a period of economic expansion that we were faced with. And it's critical that we understand that as we grope today to try to find our way. That was a period of time where we saw the imperceptible, insignificant electronic changes taking place in the industry. That's a period of time when we talked about the automaton and the cybernetic machine. Uh, mechanical arms were coming into the plant and replacing one worker here, one worker there. That therefore we were faced with a massive amount of speed up. And I don't know if you remember the old blues tune that grew out of that period by Joel Carter that talked about, please, Mr. Foreman, slow down, this assembly line that I don't mind working, but I do mind dying. There was a period of time of massive speed up as these electronic arms replaced workers one by one, and we were facing these things. We often call it not automation, but we refer to it as niggermation in a lot of plants. They hired so many black workers and worked us to death, and we refer to it that way openly and blatantly because that's the best way we could find it the time to express it. Things have changed today, and I wanted to tell you that because I think if we don't understand fundamentally that we face with a revolution in the means of production, and what we faced with back in the city of Detroit. A modern day assembly plant in the automobile industry today, if you look at it, has no labor in the body shop. It's not a single human being stock welding in the body shop that used to be our home. It's all robots. When you go to the paint shop, it's not a human being in the paint shop. It's all robots today. You go to Pole Town and Orion Township and you go to Oklahoma and Shreveport, Louisiana and look at what we got. We got a revolution in the means of production. When we look at the coke ovens and blast furnaces and the steel mills that have closed down all over the country, we got a fundamental break with the old methods, no longer insignificant and perceptible technical change, but a revolution in the means of production itself. That coke ovens and blast furnaces are being replaced with many mills and electric arc furnaces that no longer have coke production, that no longer have blast furnace production. They use an electric furnace and a concaster, and some of them operate making almost 200,000 tons in a year's time with a, with a few laborers and 80 people inside the shop. We're faced with a revolution in the means of production, and I think if we don't understand that in the course of what we do, then we miss a critical point in our course of our development. I want to say that, that oftentimes with the technical might, you know, uh, a lot of us got caught up in the claptrap. Back in the late 70s, we were talking about what automation meant and what new technology meant and what these things brought us. And I want to read for you a couple of uh, examples of this claptrap that we're talking about. It says, there proceeds a widespread belief that computerization and automation and the use of robotic equipment will free human beings from soul-destroying routine back-breaking tasks and leave them free to engage in more creative and fulfilling activities. It is further suggested that it will automatically lead to a shorter working week Longer holidays and more leisure time. And that's what we were told in the 70s. We used to talk that stuff ourselves, that the computer's going to create more jobs than it eliminates. Many of us heard that. It was spoken over and over again. Nothing could be further than the truth. The people that used to stay, used to work in the body shops and paint shops are now living under bridges and shelters. And, you know, they find themselves living and sleeping in parks and picking up food for, in order to have something to eat the next day. In the city of Detroit alone, there are almost 29 plants that have closed since 1970, yet auto production remains the same. Dodge Main is closed, Hubert Avenue Foundry is closed, Lynch Road is closed, Mack Avenue Staffing is closed, Vernon Trim is closed, Flat Rock Foundry closed, Coke Ovens closed, uh, Universal closed, Export Import closed. None of the trade union officials or, or elected officials want to stand up and admit all the plants that closed because just announcing them alone is an indictment of their activity and their fight to cake jobs. 
I think that should be understood when we face this thing, because if we don't understand that fundamentally something has changed in the course of production, then we miss our ability to try to organize in a proper kind of way. I have before me here just a little example. In 1985 and 1986, uh, the Ford Motor Company invested $150 million in the production of a new Coke battery. That Coke battery was the newest battery on the face of Earth. We had its first push on April the 16th, 1986. I want to show you here what they've done. They gave each worker a piece of Coke that came out of the first oven when it was pushed. That, that date is April the 16th, 1986. April the 27th, 1987, that battery was closed. Shut down tight, sitting there with leaves, with weeds and grass growing on the top of the battery because they no longer need the Coke production. I just want to kind of show you the kind of might that we're faced with in terms of the amount of industrial capital that's being produced and invested. And all the training that we went through was thrown to waste because, because of the amount of money in the hands of those that we work for. It's so tremendous that they throw one job out today and take a tax break on it tomorrow. That's just a replica of all of, all of us that pushed Coke that first day, and all of us still have that sitting at home. I want to say that because I think it's important that we understand that. If we don't understand the course in which we got we got to drag and, and fight. For the young people in the audience, I just wanted to indicate that this, you know, and when we look at industries, you know, a lot of things are happening. Uh, when we look at the steel industry, I think Nippon Steel Company of Japan announced earlier this year that they, they're producing the first unmanned integrated steel mill on Earth, and it'll be on track by 91. That means they will have a fully integrated steel mill producing coke, blast furnace, iron, and kind casting at the end with no human labor. Uh, once that technology we understand is in place in Japan, it'll be immediately exported here. Uh, in the auto shops, it looks like that we probably will stand up, stand up a little longer with a little human labor left because they haven't got a robot that can climb in and out of the car right now and put the, put the, the cloth on the top of the ceiling and install the dashboard. It seems as though that perhaps before we got another probably 10 years before that kind of technology will replace those jobs in that position. But I think unless we understand that every day, you know, the advance of technology you know, and the use of robotics and electronics in industry and the lack of the necessities for human labor presses upon us. And unless we understand that fundamentally and have that in our consciousness and we can't proceed to the next step to understand how do we go about organizing, who are these workers we're talking about organizing, where do we find them all? And I think if we can understand those fundamental things and it can kind of lead us on a proper track. When we move to the point in a lot of ways, this technology, technological development, development is developing in different ways. Sometimes they are offering up whole new cities. Uh, the Nucor Steel Company in Charlotte, North Carolina, put on track last year the first the thin slab caster in Crawfordsville, Indiana. They announced two weeks ago that they will build another uh, thin slab caster in Mississippi County, Arkansas, between Oscola and Blytheville. That we got to understand, I think, when we look at these new assembly plants, we find them in Marysville, Ohio, not Cleveland. We find them in East Liberty, Ohio, for Honda, not Cleveland. We find them in Smyrna, Tennessee. We find them in Orion Township. We find them in Wentzville, Missouri. We find them in Fort Wayne, Indiana, Fairfax, Kansas, Normal, Illinois, Georgetown, Kentucky, Lafayette, Indiana. All new towns is being built with new technology plants, and these plants employing only a fraction of the labor that used to exist there. In other places, we find new computerization and robotization existing side by side with auto workers. You go through the frame plant in the hot summer day. We go through the frame plant in the hot summer day, and it's not uncommon to see a robot standing here with three fans standing the robot from each side because it's got to stay cool. And a whole line of black workers with sweatbands and water bottles trying to stay cool while they work next to the robot that's, that's feeding the line. Those are the kind of conditions we face with. We've seen both kinds. Some come and build whole new cities and destructions of others, and others we've seen side by side, mechanical labor and electronic labor working side by side. I think it's important to understand that, and most of us got the task of trying to understand how this thing is going to take place in our various industries, because the technology, technological revolution or electronic revolution is full force upon us. Clearly, any, any, any uh, revolution in, in production can't help but lead to a social upheaval. And so I think when we reach the first part of the question about the necessity of the unity of black workers, it's clear to us we've got to be clear on who we're talking about. We're talking about the, those that would be employed when they find themselves laying in shelters and on welfare. You know, those that, you know, laying on park benches and those that are still working got to be united in, in one collective effort. And we've got to understand, I think, that a lot of our leaders, I think brother, one of the brothers mentioned last night, the fact that we got so many of these black leaders in the trade union movement, we've got to understand them 
the dubious role they play oftentimes. I never forget in 1967 during the riots, when after we had defeated Detroit Police Department and the Michigan State Police in their waiting for the 101st Airborne to arrive, that they sent these black trade union leaders down 12th Street to tell us to go home. I'll never forget standing there looking at Congressman Conyers, Congressman Diggs, Buddy Battle, you know, Horace Sheffield and other trade union leaders driving down the street on the trailer saying, go home. And we told them politely, you go home because we at home. And I think we've got to understand the task that we got so much to do. The task that we got in front of us today is a similar one. That we got to organize these workers wherever we find them. We got to organize them in a unified effort, understanding whether you're working or not working, that you belong to this class. You know, we got to break down the distinctions by talking about welfare cheats and what have you. The most organized sections of the unemployed are homeless union and national welfare rights. Seventy percent of the unemployed people don't draw no check nowhere. So you can't find them in organizations. And those, in, in that sense, those kind of organizations is where we got to find this solidarity. We got to build with those that's employed and those that's not employed. I think with those kind of marching orders, then we spoke to the question of black unity and why we got to do it. Other than that, we face the economic barbarism, you know, this electronic revolution that's eliminating all human labor and throwing us all asunder. I want to thank you for that opportunity. Uh, uh, uh. Yes, Yes, ah, yes, ah. check it out. My sound surround like a crown of thorns stuck into the planet. Another MC's is left stranded. A float breast stroking. They never next stretched open. Freestyle forever wet. Soaking, keep your lady open. Most handsome. Let's been listening to part two of a series of uh, highlights from some of the discussions which took place during the Malcolm X Radical Tradition and a Legacy of Struggle Conference, which was held in New York City in November 1990. In part two, we feature black workers and Elhaj Malik El Shabazz. Earlier, you heard Hasheki Binta of the Black Workers for Justice and General Baker of Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement Drum and the League of Revolutionary Black Workers. Now we're going to feature Saladin Mohammed of the Black Workers for Justice. The music in the background is All Right Now by Patrice Russian. You listen to Africa Now on WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C., your jazz and justice station. Now back to the discussion. Next, we will hear from Saladin Mohammed, who is from the Black Workers for Justice, uh, headquartered in Rocky Mount, uh, North Carolina. And he will come before you at this time to talk a bit about the current struggles being waged by his particular organization, as well as to deal with uh, some additional comments about other struggles going on in the South. And uh, we would like at this time to uh, welcome Good afternoon. I had to bear with me. I'm always nervous when I'm trying to deal with a, a critical question. Uh, so I'm going to try to do the best I can in the interest of uh, of uh, moving forward. I want to first make a couple of remarks that um, I think it has been um, a real serious uh, problem and it really reflects a weakness in uh, the way we make analysis when every time there's an analysis made about the material conditions of the South, it is always viewed as some ideological polemic. Our ability to really analyze the political economy of this country, to understand, you know, how imperialism has been able to be strong, requires that we be prepared to make a sober analysis and not to be biased because of our particular ideological uh, tendency against uh, this or that uh, way of thinking. Because independent of what we think, there's some real concrete conditions that exist in the South and that exist in the world that an effective analysis to uh, advance our struggle must consider and must be based on. Um, there's a, some thinking that, uh, and I, I'm not a historian, but, uh, you know, certainly a lot of the history has been covered. But 
I think if we look at the uh, 50s and 60s, uh, there's a view that the defeat of the uh, of legal segregation, apartheid uh, USA, uh, has represented the end of the uh, solid South. That is the uniform pattern and practices of Southern states in its treatment of the African American masses. The reality of it is, the economic realities is that the solid South essentially is united in terms of African American people being concentrated in a super exploited and a subjugated way. Some economists estimate that uh, in 1984, the super profits that was made uh, off of the oppression of the African American people throughout this country was $91 billion, half of which came from the South. But they also estimated that all of U.S. foreign investments taken together, its returns brought back $96 billion. So that says something about the oppression of African American people in this country and the particular character of the oppression in the South. Now that ain't got nothing to do with ideology, that's got something to do with the fact that this is a very powerful thing that we're dealing with, whatever we may think. The oppression of African American people in the South, even the gap between black and white workers in the South, you know, shows that even of the working class in the South, that African American people are the most exploited in the South. And thus, it is our super exploitation which more defines the character of the whole working class in the South, the white working class in the South, uh, and not the highest stage of development of the U.S. capitalist system. Because if we try to look at the working class in the South from the standpoint of the highest stage of development of the U.S. capitalist system, we will think, essentially, that the white working class in the South has its interest more with the white working class in the North and not with the struggle of the African-American masses for national liberation in the South. Because that is the reality of its condition because it has also been victimized by the role that the South has played in the development of the U.S. imperialist economy. Following the Korean War, the U.S. corporations developed manufacturing plants throughout the world, mainly in the third world, employing seven million workers following the Korean War. Let's ask the question, why didn't U.S. imperialism expand its manufacturing section to the South, to the Black Belt South, following the Korean War? I think when we look at the 60s, the late 60s and the 70s, we find the answer. Again, it's independent of ideology. We saw that the alignment, the, the anti-imperialist alignment was taking shape in Africa, Asia, and Latin America around the Vietnam War, which through the greatest resources of U.S. imperialism in trying to win that war, thus weakening its support of the colonial powers in Africa, Portugal, and the rest. Create, tilting the balance of power to send the Afri African liberation struggles on the offensive there. Following the Vietnam War and during the Vietnam War, uh, when you start to see the African liberation struggles develop, you saw a hell of a retreat of a number of corporations that had plants throughout Asia and Africa. And where did they come? They came to the South. So we begin to see that the South has historically been kept underdeveloped so that it could serve as a reserve to enable imperialism to develop and not be so easily destabilized because of its internationalization of capital. It has essentially played the role of a colony, an internal colony, 
not arguing, you understand, all of the A's and B's of what a colony is. But that's what happens. But when we analyze what industries came in the South during the late 60s and the 70s, we find out that it was not only U.S. corporations, but it was the corporations of, of developed capitalist imperialist countries who were also in Africa, Asia, and in Latin America. There's more than a thousand foreign-owned industries in the South today. Japan, Germany, Britain, right in the South. That means that the oppression of the South is not merely a factor of U.S. imperialism, it's a factor of the international imperialist system. It means you understand that the South, you understand, is subjugated and nationally oppressed like a semi-colony. Again, we're not arguing ideas. We're arguing what the materialist reality is in this country. The restructuring of the U.S. economy taking shape in the, in the 70s, we saw that major industry in the North were being not absolutely phased out, but decentralized. If you remember the first wave, you understand, you know, of, of, of restructuring was when you saw major departments of plants being phased out. And therefore, you had plants only making part of the commodity. Well, there were new plants who were subcontractors developing in the South, making it look like, you know, there was some, uh, uh, there was a different industrial character. But let me show you a phenomenon that we experienced in the South, in North Carolina. You got workers who work in the automobile industry, who make dashboards, who don't have industrial consciousness because we don't, our relationship to the centers of U.S. capital is different. They think they belong to the dashboard industry. They think they belong to the windshield industry. They think they belong to the rubber molding industry. This is not ideological, brothers and sisters. This is based on the material relationship to the centers of U.S. imperialism and the role of the South and how we must understand it. It's not an ideological question. But what has anchored the South, shaped its character, and produced the most consistent social and progressive movement in the South? It's been the oppression, the national oppression of the African-American people. That has been the basis of bringing about democracy and social progress, not only for the African-American people in the South, but for the whole working class in the South. The national movement, the Southern movement, still exists in the South. But like any other movement, it has its own problems. It has fragmentation, disunity, it's a law, you got repressive forces, you understand, that's intimidating people. But it don't mean that the material basis of that movement don't exist. And that's what we have to deal with today. Let me move forward. I please have patience uh, with me. So we see how the war helped to tilt the balance of power in favor of oppressed people's struggles against U.S. imperialism. Now, in the 70s, we also saw that the trade union movement was on the defensive. Now, how do you have a movement that only represents 15% of the whole U.S. working class be on the defensive, and it certainly was on the defensive in areas, you understand, where, where the center, where the highest stage of capitalism had developed, but in the Black Belt South and the South, you had virtually no unions in the main. Therefore, it weakened the workers' movement. It weakened the trade union movement throughout the rest of the country. Therefore, when we talk about the working class struggle and all our views are based on the workers of the vanguard, etc., well, we don't realize how weakened the organizations of the working class, how, in fact, weak the trade unions are. You got a trade union in the so-called most democratic country in the world that ain't got a labor party. It says something about, uh, about, about uh, how strong it is. I'm pro-trade union, I ain't anti, I'm, I'm absolutely pro. But the gains of the civil rights movement, the civil rights period, in order for us to advance in the South 
and throughout the rest of the country, then the balance of power must be affected. Anytime you got workers who can't wear a vote for Jackson Button or a to work without fear of losing their job. Anytime a worker can't be on the picket line fighting against racist education in, uh, in the schools because their boss is going to intimidate them, it means that the balance of power is not such that we can advance beyond the civil rights movement. That means that the workers from this movement who work in the shop, who can't stand with their children to fight against racist education, and because the trade union movements are on the defensive, have no choice but to come forward to take the lead to build worker structures and trade unions in order to affect that balance of power. And this is what is being produced gradually, coming from the most only progressive movement that has the democratic ideas that welcomes all people. The civil rights, the black power, the African-American National Liberation Movement. This is the tendency that we represent is not no ideological tendency. We ain't no party. We are coming from the working class, you know, as workers organizing. This is going to be the balance of power that we will need as we reunite the local struggles in the South and move forward challenging a South now that has a, has a lot of industries, you know, that's going to intimidate the whole African-American people by intimidating the African-American working class. You've just been listening to a continuation of a series which highlights some of the discussions which took place during the Malcolm X Radical Tradition and the Legacy of Struggle Conference, which was held in New York City in November 1990. More than 3,000 people from 25 countries attended the conference, which featured more than 100 speakers that led 24 sessions that deeply explored and contextualized and situated El-Hajj Malik El-Shabazz in the genealogy of Black Radical Internationalism as a Pan-Africanist. In today's program, we featured part two, Black Workers and El-Hajj Malik El-Shabazz, part of the series of this conference. In part two, Black Workers and El-Hajj Malik El-Shabazz, you first heard Asheki Binta of the Black Workers for Justice, then General Baker of Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement, DRUM, and the League of Revolutionary Black Workers. And he was followed by Saladin Mohammed of Black Workers for Justice. For more on this conference, we encourage you to visit Abdullah Kalamat's website, and that's alkalimat.org. That's A-L-K-A-L-I-M-A-T dot O-R-G. This full part is available on Africa Now's SoundCloud page. That's Africa Now Online on SoundCloud. That's Africa Now Online on SoundCloud. The music in the background is Kurima by Chinoiso Marere. That's it for Africa Now for today. I'm your host, Muizo Muntali. Up next is Shaanana with Zain Alamin, who looks like the plight of uh, Palestinians in Gaza and beyond. And that's followed by Sophie's Parlor, uh, which is followed by Human Rights and Justice with Nakichi Taifa, which is followed by Black Agenda Radio with Margaret Kimberly. And that's followed by Kombit Lakai with Eugenia Charles, which looks at issues in Haiti. Uh, check out Africa Now on Facebook and on Twitter. That's at Africa Now Online. And also Africa Now is archived on iTunes Podcast and SoundCloud. Search under Africa Now Online on SoundCloud. That's Africa Now Online on SoundCloud. Thanks to Africa Now's executive producer and co-host James Pope. And thanks to our engineer Michael Nisella. And thanks to our research fellow volunteers, Chanda Kozer and Fonangonda, and our Africa World Now Project Collective of Dr. Tasmin Siddiqui, Dr. Keisha Khan Perry, Dr. Josh Myers, and Kurt Erdison, and the entire team here at WPFW and to you for joining us. Continue to support all the great programs on WPFW. We're going to leave you the closing song entitled You've Got to Have Freedom by Farrell Sanders. Thank you, have a great day, have a great week, and stay safe.
From WPFW News in Washington and WBAI in New York, I'm Sue Goodwin. Today is Wednesday, January 24th. Here are some headlines. Humanity is as close to global catastrophe as it's ever been for the second year in a row, according to the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. The group revealed its doomsday clock forecast for 2024, keeping it at 90 seconds to midnight as a result of different dangers that they say pose existential threats to humanity. According to the people who run the clock, those threats include wars in the Middle East and Ukraine, a spiraling climate crisis, and the rise of artificial intelligence. The Bulletin of Atomic Scientists founded the Doomsday Clock in 1945 as a metaphor for how close humans are to destroying the world and to bring visibility to the different human-made crises that could cause that to happen. In political news, former President Donald Trump won New Hampshire's first-in-the-nation presidential primary yesterday beating former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. At an election night party, Haley congratulated him on his victory, but insisted she did not intend to drop out of the race as she prepares for a primary in her home state of South Carolina next month. Trump's victory wasn't nearly as sweeping as his Iowa win last week but it was never expected to be in a state with an electorate packed with moderate Republicans and independents. On the Democratic side, President Joe Biden won the primary as a write-in candidate. Biden, who was all but guaranteed to be his party's nominee, didn't appear on the primary ballot following an internal party dispute over the primary date. Fighting has intensified around the city of Khan Yunus in southern Gaza, where aid groups warned that thousands of civilians were trapped in hospitals or struggling to flee the area. Israel has issued new evacuation orders to over half a million Palestinians in Khan Yunus, where many had sought refuge from Israel's attack in the northern Gaza Strip. On Tuesday, at least nine Palestinians died when a missile hit one of the UN's largest shelters in Khan Yunus. Meanwhile, an Israeli government spokesperson ruled out a Gaza ceasefire today, despite reports that negotiations on hostage releases were progressing and repeated international calls for Israel to cease its bombardment of the Gaza Strip. At least 25,700 Palestinians have been killed and 63,000 injured in Israeli strikes on Gaza since October 7th, the Gaza Health Ministry said in a statement today. In related news, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres warned yesterday that Netanyahu's apparent rejection of a two-state solution will indefinitely prolong the war. In his strongest language yet, Guterres told a ministerial meeting of the UN Security Council that, quote, the right of the Palestinian people to build their own fully independent state must be recognized by all, and a refusal to accept the two-state solution by any party must be firmly rejected, close quote. He also warned that the risks of regional escalation of the war are now becoming a reality, referring to Lebanon, Yemen, Syria, Iraq, and Pakistan. And in weather today in Washington, D.C., it is 46 degrees and cloudy, with temperatures forecast to rise to 70 degrees by Friday. From WPFW News in Washington and WBAI in